it is good to be back with you guys. If you're a visitor, I was out for the last two weeks with the flu. I was actually lucky enough to get one strand of the flu, completely recover and catch a second strand of the flu uh, a day later, which I didn't even know was possible. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, I have a few announcements for you before we jump into the Word. Uh, so one, just kind of keep... Uh, our, our family, uh, our church family in prayer. A lot of things have been happening over the last couple weeks, uh, especially be with praying for Ava and Joe. Uh, Joe is our other pastor, Brother Joe Canales. Uh, over the last couple weeks, they have uh, had several uh, tragedies hit their family. Uh, one of his former deacons from another church passed away. Uh, his brother-in-law, Ava's brother, passed away. And then also uh, their aunt passed away as well. Uh, so they actually have, have had multiple things happening to them. And so we just pray for God's continued strength uh, with them, especially uh, the way that Brother Joe and Ava are. They are the anchor of their family and provide a lot of support and comfort to everybody else. So uh, we know that can be wearing on them. So please pray for them. Um, additionally, on the good side of things, uh, Brother Matt and Sister uh, Sabrina had their baby. Uh, so we have had one more member to the church. Uh, we're excited about that. Uh, and everything is going very well. We're going to see them after church today, so I'll keep you guys updated, and hopefully we'll see them here in the next few weeks. Although I've told them, be careful. Be willing to stay away as it's flu season. We want to make sure that baby stays healthy. Uh, one last announcement is next Sunday, um, the church is invited to a baby shower for uh, James and Donna's daughter, Annie. Uh, she is going to be having a little girl. And so from 2 to 4 next Sunday in the fellowship hall, they're having a baby shower for her, and the church family is invited. So as we see, right, when you're a church family, you get to divide each other's pains, and you get to share in each other's joys. Uh, that's what happens when God brings us all together. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me. We're going to be continuing our series called The Gospel Colored Glasses. Uh, the focus of this series is for us to go through the book of 1 Corinthians. And as we look at the book of 1 Corinthians, what Paul is encouraging the church to realize is that when you and I become believers... When you and I accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that changes the way that we look at all aspects of our lives. Now, to be honest, that's kind of foreign to us today in our culture because in our culture, we like to segment things off. Right? There's a way that we are and we behave and we act at work, and there's a way that we behave and act when we're with family, and there's a way that we behave and that we act when we're with friends. And every now and then a terrible thing happens where all those worlds collide and you don't know really who you are or how you're supposed to behave because no one has seen really who you are. They've just seen the lens of how you present yourself in those certain environments. And what we want to make sure as Christians is that we don't do that here at church. That there's a way we act when we're inside this building on Sundays surrounded by the Christians, but if we were to look at the folks who are sitting next to us in the pews Monday through Saturday, we'd go, man, those are completely different people than who I see when I'm at church. Paul's point to the Corinthians is, is when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord, that means he is Lord of your entire life. He is the Lord of your relationships. He is the Lord of your finances. He is the Lord of your health. He is the Lord of your behavior. He is the Lord of your faith. He is the Lord of all. And only if we are submitting everything to Him will we understand the full blessings that He has to provide to us. It's interesting because when we get into the book of 1 Corinthians, it's, it's not easy reading. It really isn't. 
It's all written in unbelievable love. This is a church that Paul helped set up. This is a church full of people that Paul has immense love for. And he is so excited about how the gospel has changed their lives. But now that he is distant from them and the church has been changing and evolving over time, he has heard back from the people there that things aren't going well. Like they're holding on to the biblical faith. Like they're still going to church. They're still singing the songs. They're still preaching the gospel. But day in and day out, their behaviors look more like the world around them. And that is leading to problems in their lives and problems in their church. And so as we go through this, I want to remind you of a few things that kind of frame this whole book. A few things that he's warned them about. And the first has been, the church is united in the Word. And so Paul starts this book and he really hits home with these people that you've got to be united in what God's Word is and what He stands for. There are so many things that will try to divide the church that we have to remember what our foundation is. And if we don't have that same core foundation, when pressure comes, when pain comes, when hurt comes, we will splinter off and we will be divided. And he reminds them in this book, these can be big things and little. When he starts the book, he reminds them, you guys are being splintered over worship style. Each of you has your own favorite pastor and you argue about which one's better, which style's more effective, and you don't want to listen to any sermons from anybody else. You just want to hear your guy. And Paul's like, is, really? Is Christ divided? These different pastors aren't your saviors. These different pastors aren't your Lord. You have one Savior. You have one Lord. And as long as He is preached, that is all you care about. Amen. That the gospel truth is shared. And then the second thing he points them to is, okay, so you have these silly things dividing you, but you also have something much bigger that you have to understand. And that is, the church is at war with the world's culture. See, the church of Corinth was a church that's important for you and I to relate to because it's similar to the setting we're in. When Paul helped plant churches, there was two types that you would see. You would see him plant churches in Jewish places. And in Jewish places, the beauty of setting up a church there was Jewish people already had a relationship with Yahweh God. They also had all of the morality of the Old Testament. And well, if you look at the Old Testament and New Testament, you will see some differences. The reality is it's the same God preaching the same message, which is love God and love people. And so when Paul would set up a church in a Jewish place, there was a great foundation to build off of. The morality was the same. The relationship with God was the same. There was this great strength that they could grow off of. Not only that, but there was a culture that surrounded the church that for the most part pushed people and pointed people towards God. And so you had this environment that would help you behave and act in a godly way. Completely different scenario though when he would plant a church in a Gentile place. When he would plant a church in a Gentile place, there was no foundation. The morality of that time did not understand God's ways. You would see open paganism. You would see justice that looks nothing like how God looks at justice. You would see worship styles that had nothing to do with Christianity. In fact, in Corinth, it was a regular practice if you worshipped other gods to go to their temples and be with prostitutes. That was a form of pagan worship. 
And so Paul goes, I've built this church in Corinth and it's surrounded by this culture that is pulling these people away from God. And what he realized is, is that the Corinthians were struggling not only because they were internally at conflict, but they were trying to put one foot in the culture of the church and put one foot in the culture of the world. And Paul's going, you can't do that. It doesn't work. You can't pursue both of these things and be successful because these things are completely at odds. There's no common ground here. It's why many today struggle with Christianity because what you've seen happen in modern Christianity is we take the promises of God which promise things like prosperity, which promise things like abundance, which promise things like peace. But what we do then is we strip out what God's actually talking about which is spiritual prosperity, spiritual peace, spiritual abundance, and we replace those with things of the world. And we start teaching people, well, hey, if you're a great Christian, if you come to church, if you pray, you read your Bible, you're going to be rich. You're going to be successful. You're going to have a nice car. You're going to have a successful business. And people believe that, but then they start going, hey, been going to church for a while and still broke. Uh, been praying and the business still is terrible. And the reason for that is we've tried to mix these two things that don't belong together. God is not about filling you up with the shallow things of this world that are temporary. He's about giving you the eternal things that give you what you need here. Thank you. And so we have to understand that you and I basically live behind enemy lines. We have a culture that all day, every day is pulling us away from God. And we've got to understand that. So we've got to be united in the world, word, We've got to be diligent to stand against the culture of the world. And the third thing is, we should be always growing and serving. So Paul's big struggle with the church of Corinth, and he's been gone for a while, is that when he hears about what's happening, they're actually in a worse place than they were when he planted the church. And so brothers and sisters, this is an important thing for you and I to understand. Each and every one of us has our own path. Each and every one of us has our own strengths, talents, and abilities. And each and every one of us has come from a different place with different challenges and different blessings. So none of us are always going to be in the same place. Many of us on our journey will never be in the same place. But what God wants to see is, is if you're in a loving relationship with Him, where you're constantly in the Word, what all of us should be able to see is growth. All of us should be able to see progress. All of us should be able to look back at who we were a year ago, a week ago, 10 years ago, and go, I'm different now. I'm different. One of the first churches I served at, uh, there was a man who was kind of like a hero to me. Because he was just the most amazing, faithful, devoted servant. Every Sunday or Wednesday, whatever day it was that we were at church, he would walk into the pastor's office, he'd say, good morning, and he'd go, what can I do for you today? What can I do for you? And any task that was given to him, he would pour his energy, his time, everything he had into accomplishing that thing. And he'd never seek glory. He would never want anyone to know he did it. But he was all in. 
And not only was he this unbelievably faithful servant to the church, but just if you looked at his life, it looked so blessed. He had this wonderful marriage. Have you ever seen those marriages where you know not only are the people in love, but they're like best friends? You see those where you know like they just love being around each other. And he had children that knew the word and followed the word and loved him. And it was just this beautiful family. But it was funny because one Christmas I, I was talking to him. I didn't know all the details of his life. And he was telling me about how Christmases are real hard for him. And I said, why? Why is Christmas hard for you? It's the best time of the year. And he goes, well, it's hard for me because it's when my other family shows up. I was like, what? what do you mean other family? And he goes, oh, you don't know the whole story, do you? He goes, this is my second wife. He goes, my first wife and my marriage with her was not the same. He goes, back then I was a man who was consumed with alcoholism. I was a man who was consumed with pride and arrogance in pursuit of money. I was a man who was completely unfaithful to his wife. I was a man who built my life on all the wrong things. And because of that, I, I pushed her away. And because of that, I raised children who were unbelievably resentful of me. He goes, the hard thing now is, is they show up and we've made peace and we're working together. But when they see what I have now, it's hard for them to stomach that this can be real. It's hard for them to believe that this, this can be true. Because they grew up and <laughs> they experienced none of these things. They're like, how can the man who did all this also now be the man who does all of this? How's that possible? And I asked him, I said, answer that for me. How is it possible? I said, everything you're telling me about this past life doesn't even seem like it's remotely possible for you to have done. And he goes, I know. He goes, but that's what happens when you fall in love with Jesus. Amen. That's what happens when you experience a new kind of love and a new kind of life that wipes out everything from the past and helps you build up from new. He goes, I know I'll never be able to fully make those things right, but I will spend the rest of my life trying to show those children how much I love them. I share that with you, brothers and sisters, because what I want you to take hope in is as we get into the Word, God's going to step all over your toes. 1 Corinthians doesn't care about your feelings. 1 Corinthians is not here to make you feel inspired or happy about yourself or go, man, I'm awesome. 1 Corinthians is here to punch you in the mouth and go, look, there's some darkness in your hearts. There's darkness in everybody's hearts. And if you don't acknowledge it, it will kill you. Now, if you just stop the story there, it's a bummer story. The beauty, though, is that's not where the story stops. Yes, there is darkness in all of our hearts. Yes, all of us have behaviors that if we pursue to their end, will lead to death. The beauty, though, is we have a God who intercepted that story. We have a God who came in and said, even though you have built your life on the wrong things, I'm here to give you forgiveness, to give you grace, to give you love. And no matter how far you've run the wrong way, if you'll follow me, I'll lead you out. See, brothers and sisters, people don't like talking about sin because if that's all we talk about, it's a sad story. But it's only when we truly acknowledge the darkness of our sin and what it's done to us that we then get to acknowledge the beauty of the end of the story. 
which is in the moment of our deepest, darkest place, in the moment where we had no hope, Jesus shows up. And when it looked like there was no way to be saved, He comes and He saves us. He comes and He finds these people that He tells them their behavior is so bad and so wrong, and He goes, but still, I love you. Still, you're mine. And so what I encourage you, brothers and sisters, as we go through this, don't just go, man, I hate hearing this. Go, no, this is the beauty that sets us up to realize just how much God loves us. Right? The story of a Savior means nothing to people who don't need to be saved. The story of a Savior is only beautiful to those who are in a place and realize, I'm dead and there's no way for me out. I need a miracle. So let's jump in. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 7. Now I'm going to give you some homework. I encourage you guys to take a look at the first part of chapter 6. I'm not going to go through all of it. I'm going to touch on it briefly. But there's a section here about lawsuits. So let's just kind of jump in in verse 7 and we'll cover what he's saying here. It says, Actually then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to the brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of our God. So let's just pause right there. So, so he, he starts this passage and he talks about this first issue of lawsuits. And what he's saying is in the church of Corinth, there is this regular behavior that's occurring where brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, are taking their issues outside of the church, taking them to public courts and suing each other. And Paul's like, what are you guys doing? You guys are are supposed to be servants to the same Lord You're supposed to be servants to the same Christ. You're supposed to have a love that bonds you together where you would sacrifice joyfully for one another. And yet, over the littlest things, you are quick to leave the guidance of the church, go out to public courts, bear all the dirty laundry, and sue each other to defraud each other. Why? Why? And what Paul is pointing to here is a couple things. One, you and I, with each other, And with all people should be motivated by love. Now let me clarify that word for us because we have butchered it in English. You and I are terrible when it comes to the word love because we have used it for a million different things. If you're like me, you've said you've loved a cheeseburger. You've said you've loved your favorite shirt. You've said you've loved a song or a movie. You've also said that you've loved your children, your wife, and your Lord. Now I sure as heck hope that you don't have the same feelings about your favorite cheeseburger as you do about Jesus. That would be bad for us. I'm not doubting your love for cheeseburgers. I'm just saying hopefully there's some more emotion there, more commitment when it comes to Christ. 
We also use love even in personal relationships just far too loosely. I mean, how many of you yourselves have been told by someone, I love you, but you later learned there was no love at all there? Like what we really mean when we say I love you in America is I kind of like you and I think you're hot. That's, that's basically what we're saying. It's why so many teenagers say it so quickly. They're not really saying I would do anything for you. They're saying you're cute and I like being around you, so I love you. That's what I'm supposed to say. What Christ means when he says I love you is that I will joyfully sacrifice for your benefit. Let me say that again. Love is you saying I will joyfully sacrifice for your benefit. That's not, hey, I'll do nice things for you if I can. It's not, hey, if I have leftovers, I'll give them to you. It's not, hey, if it's no sweat off my back, I'll do things to make your life better. No, what that's saying is, is I care more about you than I care about myself. And if I have to go through pain and through hurt, and if I have to sacrifice everything I've got to make your life better, I will. And I'll do it happily. I'll do it with joy. Because I love you. That's what love is. And so Paul goes, how do people who supposedly have this love in them then over the smallest things go, let's sue each other? Something's missing. Something's wrong. And then the second thing he says is, not only is it wrong just in your own personal relationships, but what are you guys doing to your testimony? And so he makes this point to him. The church should strive to be holy in the eyes of the world. Now, listen to me. I'm not saying we should be fake. Because to be honest, I think sometimes Christians are really bad at that. <coughs> I've seen a lot of churches where they're full of people who have no clue who's sitting next to them. I've seen churches where you go to church with the same people for years. You're in Sunday school with them. You're in life group with them. You're in choir with them. You're doing all these things. And the reality is you have no clue who they are. That's terrible. Because what that means is, is even in the house of God, even when we're worshiping Him, even when we're supposed to be built in truth, we're faking. Like we're coming to church, we're putting on the facade to show you my best foot forward because I want you guys to think I'm a decent person. Because somehow if you guys think that, maybe it's true. And we're all just trying to fake our way through this so that we all have a good impression of each other. That's terrible. God has no desire for the church to be fake. But what he is saying is, remember you have a mission when you're my disciples. When you're my disciples, you no longer solely represent yourself. You represent him. And so especially when we go outside those doors, I no longer just represent Luke Gradeless. I represent Jesus Christ. And when people know that I am his servant and I am his disciple, then people will look and analyze our lives in a different way. And so when we go out there and just lay all our dirty laundry out and we just behave emblazed in sin, we're not just hurting our own reputation, we're hurting his. And so what Christ is saying to this church is, guys, would you rather not handle these things internally? Would you rather not take some small personal infraction upon yourself for the sake of love and for the sake of presenting God and His gospel in the best light? 
Why don't you care about that? And see, brothers and sisters, what's sad about this is we're really selfish when it comes to this. Because I think every single believer completely wants to be treated like Jesus in the eyes of God. Right? When it comes to God judging me, I don't want him to see me, I want him to see Jesus. Right? The whole beauty of the cross is not just that Christ washes us clean with his blood, but that Christ covers us in his righteousness. Which means for you and I, when we're judged by God in heaven, He is not going to look at you and go, you sinner. He's going to look at you and go, I see the righteousness of my Son, Jesus Christ. And I will treat you and I will honor you like I honor Him. So when it comes to Him, each and every one of us says, sign me up, I want to be treated like Jesus. But then the moment we go out to the world, we're like, well, I don't want that pressure. I didn't ask for that. You can't have it both ways. If we're covered in the righteousness of Christ, that's a one-time thing that's either permanent or it's not. Right? We don't take the righteousness on and off at our disposal. We don't get to go, well, in here I'd like to be treated that way, but out here when I'm doing these things, can I just take that off? It doesn't work that way. It's a permanent change. And Paul is encouraging the church to keep that in mind. You have a responsibility to honor him in the way that you act out in that world. Look what it says in Philippians chapter 2. It says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do you understand the beauty of that? I mean, what I do hate is it's so true. But if you just look at the world we live in right now, I think that's a great description. A crooked and twisted generation. Everything you look at is just turn on the news for five minutes and not get bummed out. You see constantly people pursuing and chasing after the wrong things. And you see the destruction that it is creating. But God goes, you know what's awesome? Is you guys who used to be in the midst of that. You guys who used to be drowning in that. Now, you get to be lights in that darkness. You get the opportunity to live in that darkness in such a way that others look at your life and see hope. Not because you're perfect, but because they see you rising above the circumstances that surround you. And in that, that gives hope to other people that if that can work for you, maybe it can work for them. But brothers and sisters, if we go outside those walls and we're just as dark as everything else around us, we bring no hope with us. And so Paul is encouraging them to remember you represent more than you. You represent Christ. Now you can look at that as a burden or you can choose to look at that as one of the greatest honors of your life. That Christ would ever look at me and say, you get to represent me. I don't understand. But I will cherish that every day of my life. That's what Paul is encouraging them. And then Paul goes from this. And what I want you to see, right, he's talking about lawsuits, he's talking about sex, but there's a bigger thing he's talking about, which is this concept of holiness. Holiness in the way that we live. 
And so he transitions from this topic of lawsuits and he goes right back into the topics of sex. And what's important for us to remember is, I don't want you to get twisted on this. I don't want you to get twisted on, on, on our view of how we look towards the world. Look what he says in Galatians. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so understand what he's saying. He's not saying that the church is driven by approval from the world. You and I are not living in a way so that our goal is the world goes, man, those Christians are cool. I really like those Christians, guys. They're amazing. We're not seeking their approval. But what we are seeking is that they look at us and go, those people are set apart for the purposes of God. Amen. So I always kind of told you, I think good Christians should be weirdos. I mean that in the best way. Not weirdos where you're like, I don't know what to talk to those people. You know, not weirdos like, hey, stay away. I'm talking about the kind of weirdos where you're like, the way they live life is weird. Right? The way they handle times of darkness and despair is weird. Because instead of crumbling, they almost seem to be stronger. Right? The way they handle people who hate them, the way they handle their enemies is weird. Because instead of seeking vengeance or trying to get their own, they instead seem to love these people that hate them. Everything we're called to is to live in such a way that people are like, these people are just strange. But it's that strangeness that piques their curiosity to go, why are you like that? And they'll go, let me tell you about the greatest story ever. Let me tell you about this person, Jesus, who will make your life completely and utterly different than it used to be. So again, I'm not seeking the approval of the world, but I am seeking to be acknowledged by the world as being different. Set aside. So as he transitions, go back into the word, right? In verse 9 he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And this is the part where everybody always gets caught up. He says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And people love to stop right there and go, This is why you Christians are hateful bigots. Because you want to point at everybody else and go, you guys are wrong, you're bad, so that you feel better about yourselves. Well, brothers and sisters, let's break this down a little bit because there's a few things that are missing from that concept. People love to say that Christians are hateful. But we need to understand a few things about this list here. Well, we normally gravitate towards the sexual immorality of this because that's the part that's so easy for us to see. There's a much bigger topic that he's discussing. Yes, sexual immorality is part of this list, but it's not all of it. What God is really talking to is he is talking to that the church will not stand intentional, habitual sin. If you and I build into our lives a lifestyle that says, I know God says this thing is wrong. I don't care. This is a foundational element of my life. That's what that list is addressing. 
Because brothers and sisters, here's the reality. Nowhere in here is what he's saying that we should be perfect. In fact, there are many passages that will tell you, if you think you're perfect, you obviously don't know God. Anybody who actually spends time in the presence of the Almighty God who is perfect, there is one thing they will absolutely know. I am not perfect and I am not God. If you ever meet somebody who is so arrogant that they think they're perfect, what I can tell you is they are not regularly in the presence of the Almighty. It's the only way you get that arrogant. This is not a call to perfection. What this is a call to is, hey, when you guys make mistakes, those mistakes should be more mistakes that happen in the moment. They happen out of passion. They happen out of you not thinking things through. They happen because you're not really prepared. What shouldn't happen is that you've built your life so that it will just constantly produce sin. Because how can you look at the Almighty and say, I serve you, I love you, I'm yours, but hey, every single day of my life I'm going to run completely the opposite way that you've asked me? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And notice also the context here. The context here is if you want the kingdom. So this list of things that he talks about not doing, he's saying, if you do these things, you have no place in the kingdom. And why I think that's so important is people often who have no desire to be in the kingdom are very mad that we're saying these are standards to be in the kingdom. Nowhere is this saying that Christianity has the responsibility to go out into the world and to eradicate these things. What this is saying is if you have a desire to be in the kingdom of God, yes, there is a standard of how you behave and act. And this is part of it. And if there are people who have no desire to be in the kingdom of God, then by all means, they're probably not going to follow these things. That's their prerogative. That's their choice. Also, notice that just because it says these things are wrong, did you read in there where it says we're supposed to hate people who do these things? I'll be honest, as a pastor, my favorite was in in college. In college, especially when I was in classes where it was not religiously focused, more like philosophy class or ethics class, my professors who knew I was going to become a pastor often loved to set me up to be the one person to bring the biblical perspective against the worldly perspective. And I love that because I was like, thank you. Thank you so much for putting me in a position where I now have to argue the entire classroom. And one of the things that would often happen is people would go, you hate gay people. And I would be like, can we just talk about that? You know in the Bible it tells me I can't hate anyone. So first, let's break down what the Bible is really saying. The Bible is saying these behaviors are sinful. Which means if I meet somebody who does any of these behaviors and they don't think they're sinful, that just means we have a disagreement. It doesn't even mean we're enemies. It just means on this behavior, we disagree. They're coming from their place of truth, which tells them they think it's right. I'm coming from the Word of God, which I believe is the only source of truth, and saying this is what God says. We disagree. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell me that if I disagree with you, I should hate you. And in fact, look at the whole list of things. Does anybody go around going, Christians hate liars? Christians hate swindlers. Christians hate the greedy. You don't really hear those arguments. 
But you regularly hear, well, you hate gay people. No. I just don't believe their lifestyle is right. And in fact, the same animosity that I would have towards that action is the exact same animosity I have for my heterosexual friends who have built their life on the pursuit of money. They built their lifestyles wrong. I have friends at work who absolutely fit into this list, not because they're gay, but because their whole entire life is about how much money can they get in their bank account. And they will sacrifice their morality, they will sacrifice their time, they will sacrifice things with their families to get more dollars. That's wrong. It's a foundational element of their life that is completely built against the Word of God. And so first, understand what God's saying is, we disagree on right and wrong here. But second, remember that even if we were to say this makes us enemies, what has God told you to do with your enemies? To love them. So even if this disagreement on this issue, being right or wrong, led to us being enemies in life, Christ has still told me, Luke, your job is to love those people like you love yourself. There is no place for hate in the life of Christians. And nowhere is that what God is promoting here. And in fact, look at the beauty of what he's going to say here. Because he goes on to elaborate about the reality of the church. So let me, let me clarify this with a couple of verses for you. 1 Peter chapter 1. As obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So again, why is God calling us to be different? Because we're His. He wants us to look like Him. I don't know about you guys, but when I was raised by my parents, I would regularly hear from my dad, that's not how gradelesses do it. He would regularly talk about certain behaviors that represented our family. Gradelesses don't give up. Gradelesses don't lie. Gradelesses, right, there was, there was a regular thing, and what he was breeding into me, what he was teaching me was, look, there may be other people in this world who behave this way, but not our family. We don't do that. And son, you carry my name, so when you go out in that world, you're not just Luke. You're Luke gradeless. You represent me. You represent your mom. You represent your grandfather. You represent this family. It's the same thing that God's saying. You represent me, so show it. He says here, but understand this. That since the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, and not loving good. They will be treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will have the appearance of godliness, but they will deny its power. Avoid such people. See, what's unique about the generation that you guys are in is it used to be if you were a person who believed that homosexuality was right or that greed was right or that being not honest all the time was right, you really had no desire for the kingdom. You had no desire to label yourself as a Christian. Why would you? I disagree with everything they stand for. Why would I want to have that label on me? But we now live in a generation where you have people who go, well, I disagree about half of this stuff, but I'd still like to be considered a Christian. 
I don't want you to tell me I'm not that. It's a very strange world we live in because what's happened is we no longer believe in an absolute truth. Everybody believes everything is relative. Everything. But we're now in a generation where we don't even truly believe you can tell someone whether they're a boy or a girl. It's relative. That's the kind of world we're growing up in. And what you're saying is if that can be debatable, then what can't be debatable? I would argue nothing. And so the world that we live in now says, there is no truth. I can be whatever I want to be and nobody else can tell me that. And what God's saying is you can choose to be anything you want. But if you want to be my servant and you want to be part of my kingdom, there is a standard. Amen. And that's what the standard is. If I stopped right there, each and every one of you would go, okay, so God has this unbelievably harsh line of behavior and morality, and if you don't pass it, you're out of the kingdom. This is the same angry, old, mean God that we've always heard about, and this is why Christians are hateful. This is why Christians are wrong. This is why Christians are bigots. But notice what Paul says, and this is huge. He says God built the church with people that were involved in intentional, habitual sin. That's what he says. Look at it. He goes through this whole list here in chapter 6. He talks about how these actions are, are not right. And then in verse 11 he says, Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, we don't sit here as a group of people who looks at that list and go, thank God I was never that way. I'm so much better than these people. No, we sit here going, I used to be all those things. I used to be in the midst of that muck. And in fact, if I'm honest, I'm still that. If I didn't have Christ, there is darkness in me that would take me the wrong way every day of my life. I told you before, this is nothing but a big AA meeting. It's just for some of us, it may not be alcohol or drugs, it's sin. Where each and every morning we can wake up and go, Hi, I'm Luke, I'm addicted to sin. The beauty of Christ is not that he looks at those things and goes, Those people have no part of my kingdom. It's only if you've done those things and go, These things are right. It's only then that he goes, well, then I have nothing for you. The beauty of him is no matter how much darkness we've had, if we could look at that list and go, I've done all those things and more, he still goes, you're mine and I'll die for you and I will wash you clean and I will take you to the kingdom if you're willing to follow me. The church is not a place that has been built to push these people away. It's a place that's been built to pull these people in from that darkness and show them the life and the love that they have been looking for. And let's be honest, the reason that most of the people have embraced these things is because they were pursuing those things in the first place. I don't think most people who have built their lives on greed have done it because they want to be a bad person. I think they've done it because they go, there is an emptiness in me that I don't know how to fill. And the only time that some of that darkness, some of that emptiness goes away is when I fill my life with this money. It makes me feel good. 
And so they start to build this thesis, well, that maybe if I had lots of this money, tons of this money, then maybe finally that thing would go away. Maybe finally that pain and that hurt would leave. And so what God is acknowledging is, look, all of you have done these things. But those who are in the church have realized they don't lead to peace. They don't lead to fulfillment. They give you a momentary, temporary enjoyment that makes you forget about the pain. But then that fades away and you realize the pain's still there and sometimes even worse. The church is built on the people that have done all these wrong things. And that's why, brothers and sisters, what you and I have got to find is this beautiful balance where we can boldly and proudly stand on the word of truth and go, these things are right and those things are wrong and I will not budge from that. But I love everybody. And I stand on this truth, not so I can tell myself I'm better than you, but because I believe that the only way for you to experience true peace, true relief from the pain you feel is to acknowledge this truth. Brothers and sisters, the most beautiful thing for each and every one of us to realize is that we are sinners. And that if we pursue that sin to the end of time, we'll die. And you go, how can that be a beautiful thing? It's a beautiful thing because only once you know that can you open yourself to the truth that there's a God who's here to forgive you and save you from it. Right? He tells us, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. It's only those who know they're broken that will let the Savior put them back together. And so each and every one of us, we've got to find that balance. That balance to stand on the truth of God and not budge from it, but to show everybody that we do that not for our pride and arrogance, but because we love them and we care for them. Look at what he says in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not some, not the little things, all unrighteousness. In fact, it is often the people who have experienced the darkness the most that have some of the most passionate love for God. Because they understand exactly how much He's forgiven them. They understand just exactly what it means for Him to have sacrificed Himself for them. The beauty is understanding all unrighteousness can be washed away. Look at Romans 5.8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why is it impossible for me to hate the people on that list? Not only because I used to be one, but also the person I love more than anybody in the world, Jesus Christ, He died for those people. He loved them so much, He died for them. If he'll do that for them, what should I do for them? How should I help them? How should I sacrifice for them? Brothers and sisters, what I want to leave you with today is when you go through books like this, 
when you go through places where you're convicted of your sin, don't shy away from it. If you stay there only looking at your sin, yes, it will weigh you down, it will fill you with guilt, it will fill you with shame, and it will sometimes leave you in places where you don't think you're worthy of God and you don't want to keep moving forward. But there is a beauty when you acknowledge the sin that has been in your life and you realize that you can take all of that. You can lay it at His feet and He'll wipe it away. And not only will He wipe it away, but then He will cover you with His righteousness. I don't know if you fully understand that, but like, here's how I've always translated that in my head. If you ever had a massive amount of financial debt, which I'm assuming nobody in this room has ever had, it would be a beautiful gift if somebody came to you and go, hey, you know that 20,000 you owe? I'll pay it off right now. And can you imagine for some of you, some of you would probably break down into tears if somebody would show up right now and go, I will pay off every cent of debt that you have. Now, imagine that happened to each of us that's a beautiful gift, but what does it not guarantee? It doesn't guarantee that we won't be back in debt in three years. In fact, there's probably some of us who have been in this. I've done this before in my financial life where I've been so excited about being out of debt that I immediately go and rack up new debt. We paid that off. We should treat ourselves. Let's just go buy a few things to celebrate the fact that we're out of debt. And then you wake up six months later and you're like, how did we get back here again? Yeah. Like the, the fact is, if Christ only came to wash away our sins that one moment, we'd probably all still be in trouble. Because knowing us, rather quickly, we'd build the debt right back up. Beauty with him is not only did he come and wash that sin away, but then he covered us in this righteousness which says, From this point forward, I walk with you. From this point forward, I'm like that mom who every time you get dirty washes your face clean. I'm like that loving person who sits right next to you, and every time you try to veer off course, I try to pull you back. Every time you fall, I pick you back up. He's not your one time savior, he's your every day. Lord. And it's only once we see that darkness that we understand just how brilliant and wonderful and beautiful that light is. Paul wasn't telling the church of Corinth these things because he hated them. He wasn't telling them these things so he could look in the mirror and go, aren't I better than them? He was telling them these things because he loved them. Because he saw that these sins were crushing them. And he knew if they could see it, he knew if they could push those sins to Christ, that he would bring them back together and he would lift them back up. And he'd do amazing things with them. That same promise that Christ made to those people in Corinth, he makes to you. If you will see that darkness and you'll put it towards him, he'll wipe it clean and he'll lift you back up. That's the beauty of our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for loving us in truth. The truth, Lord, the Lord, that stands passionately and boldly 
with what is right and what is wrong. But a love, Lord, that also forgives all that darkness, all that sin. Father, I pray as your church that we are instruments in your hand. That we are used by you, Lord, to bring you glory and to build your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us holds a deep conviction in our heart to stand on your truth and not let it be pushed aside, not let it be silenced. And I pray, Lord, that in each and every one of us there is a, a bright fire filled with your love. A love, Lord, that leads us not just to bring you glory, but to go out into the world and to love each and every person you put into our lives. Father, I thank you for saving sinners like us. I thank you, Lord, for looking at this room full of people that the world would have turned its back on. And for you pulling us back into your family, washing us clean, and letting us shine your light. Father, we love you and we serve you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As Maria sings, I'll be down at the front. If there's anything on your heart that you just would like to know somebody else is praying for, feel free to come up. And as always, if you don't feel comfortable coming up during service, please seek me out after. I'll be glad to talk with you or pray with you. Maria. Let's all stand.
Death has lost its grip on me You have broken every chain There's salvation in your name Jesus Christ, my living hope Hallelujah, hallelujah Praise the one who set me free Hallelujah Death has lost its grip on me You have broken every chain There's salvation in your name Jesus Christ, my living hope Then came the morning That sealed the promise Your buried body began to breathe Out of the silence The roaring lion Declared the grave has no name on him Jesus Christ is a victory Praise the one who set me free, hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me, you have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope, hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free, hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me, you have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Jesus Christ, my living hope. God, you said it's so good to be back with you guys I love worshiping with you I want to encourage you with a couple things remember that if you are a believer you have been given God's spirit that's the spirit of power of love and self-discipline that means you're dangerous right that means the world should be scared of you and remember you have a mission it's to go outside those doors and it's to build disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. I love you all. Have a great week and may God bless you. Don't forget we got cake back in the back. So-